This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Father, once again, we just thank you for sending the light, the light of the world. And uh, Father, that's just kind of a great way to kick off our, our study of your word. And I just pray that every aspect of your word would, would speak to us as we give just some of the historical aspects and the biblical narrative, and then as we bring it into our lives, I pray that it would really speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to the Christmas story, what character do you most closely identify with? And I know that's probably not a fair question because you haven't had a chance to think about it. So let me just turn the question in towards me and let you know who I most closely identify with. But before I do, let me tell you the characters that I do not identify with. And, you know, first of all, I don't identify with the donkeys. Um, I've been called another name that means donkey. Hopefully not by too many of you, but, but I, you know, I still can't identify with a bunch of donkeys. Secondly, I really can't identify with Mary, and, and I know it'd probably worry if you worry you if I did, but there's nothing about Mary that I can really identify with. Thirdly, I, I really can't even identify with Joseph, except for the fact that we share the same name, but I'm not a carpenter, and at best I can sometimes cobble some stuff together, but most of you would just laugh at my work, nor do I really identify with the shepherds. I, I enjoy working with cows, but these shepherds were more into sheep, and even though lambs look so cute and so cuddly, sheep are really dumb. And I have no desire to work with a bunch of dumb sheep. How about the wise men? No, I, I, I've been called a wise guy, but I don't think it was a compliment. How about baby Jesus? No, we don't even want to go there. So who do I identify with the most? This is kind of embarrassing for a pastor to admit this, but I think I most closely identify with the villain of Christmas, who is King Herod. Now, before you look down at your long nose at me and, and polish your crooked halo, <laughs> let me impl implicate you as well. Um, I believe there's a little bit of Herod in you. In fact, looking around, and I won't mention any names, you'll be grateful for that again, but I think there's a lot of Herod in some of you. So who was King Herod? Well, Herod was king of Judea during the time when Christ was born. Herod wasn't a Jew, but Rome had appointed him over Judea anyway, which didn't go over well. Uh, you know, with the Jewish people, it made him a public enemy. Herod was an incredibly smart and talented person. First of all, he was known as a builder. He, he helped rebuild the Jewish temple. He, he, he built fortress cities. Uh, he built aqueducts, other kinds of uh, amazing structures. But besides that, Herod was an astute politician, which I'm not sure is a compliment, but he would have been a perfect fit in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure if he would have been a Republican or a Democrat, 
But he would have been one of those guys that moved up quickly through the ranks, would have probably been on committees and maybe even a leader in the House or the Senate. Now, before we read the, the biblical narrative of, of King Herod, and, and I don't want to get lost in this next part of the lesson, but, but I want to bring in some historical facts simply because they will help us better understand the political climate during the time when Jesus was born. And, and for those of you that wish you would have lived back in those days, listen to this very carefully, okay? Just some history. All of you back in high school or college studied the story of Julius Caesar. How many of you remember at least the name Julius Caesar? You know, I think probably most of us or all of us. And, and it's been a little while since I was in college. So in preparing this lesson, I spent some time reviewing the history again because I, I wanted to make sure that I gave accurate information. Otherwise, some of you like Pastor Darren would have probably had to correct me. But, but during the reign of Julius Caesar, and by the way, different historical narratives, different historical sources will have a few details that vary a little bit. But during the reign of Julius Caesar, over time, he had become very unpopular. He had uh, decreed certain policies and promoted certain laws that didn't set well with his constituents and, constituents, and especially the senators in the government. And so one day, on the Ides of March, which was March 15th, 44 B.C., on the steps of Pompey's Theater, Julius Caesar was met by 60 or so senators holding daggers. It would be a coup attempt that became successful. Those senators began stabbing him, as history says, in the neck area. And, and during this coup, a man that Julius Caesar thought was his friend, a man named Marcus Brutus, came up to him. And to Julius Caesar's shock and disbelief, Marcus Brutus joined in with this mob of senators. And right before Julius Caesar died, he, even though it's actually disputed whether or not Julius Caesar made this statement, yet etched in our minds is that statement that we have read in our textbooks, remember the statement, et tu brute? How many of you remember that statement? Um, you too, Brutus, is what that means? Julius Caesar couldn't believe that his friend had joined in against him, and uh, many of you remember that whole story. Well, well, Julius Caesar died, and, and when he died, his nephew Octavius, or also known as Octavian, as well as his friend Mark Antony, decided they were going to avenge the death of Julius Caesar. And so Mark Antony and Octavius went out and began to kill some of the people responsible for the death of Julius Caesar. Well, as time went by, and, and by the way, this is all going to tie in beautifully into our lesson, but, but as time went by, everyone realized that these two men, Mark Antony and Octavius, who were both alpha males and very strong-willed, strong personalities, even though they were friends right now, they just knew that the friendship wouldn't last, especially since there was only room for one sheriff in Rome, if you know what I mean. Well, over, t over time, these men became more and more powerful, and, and sure enough, some cracks began to form in, in their friendship. And as the conflict began to go public, different legions of the Roman army, as well as private citizens, began to choose sides. Well, this is where King Herod came in. King Herod chose to befriend Mark Antony and his wife. And, and of course, Mark Antony had a very famous wife from Egypt. Do you remember her name? Cleopatra. 
And the Roman citizens absolutely hated Cleopatra. They were, they were afraid that she was going to try to unite Egypt and Rome, and, and they didn't trust her. But, but King Herod campaigned for Mark Antony and, and, and Cleopatra and sent them lavish gifts and hosted parties for them. Well, in 31 B.C., the conflict between Mark Antony and Octavius has escalated into a full-blown civil war. And unfortunately for, for King Herod, uh, he bet on the wrong horse. Because Mark Antony and, and his allegiance were almost immediately defeated by Octavius. And, and Mark Antony and Cleopatra ran for their lives to Egypt where, interestingly enough, Mark Antony took his own life shortly after Cleopatra Cleopatra followed suit. Well, that left Octavian, Julius Caesar's nephew, to become Caesar Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome. Well, all of a sudden, King Herod and Judea realized, uh-oh, I bet on the wrong horse. I, I, I backed the wrong person. I'm in deep weeds now. I backed Mark Antony, Cleopatra. They were defeated. So King Herod basically had three options. Number one, he could go ahead and kill himself and get it over with because that's probably what, what they were going to do to him anyway. Number two, he could run, but he, he knew they would eventually find him. Number three, he could just kind of hunker down and hide and hope for the best. But Herod was so conniving. He was so astute. He came up with option number four. Now, option number four was a dumb move. It, it was foolishness. It, it was a plan that was destined to fail. But remember, King Herod was smooth. He was a politician. Option number four actually worked. Let me tell you what he did. And this is absolutely crazy. King Herod got on a boat and went to the island of, of Rhodes where Octavian, or as, as he had become uh, known, uh, Caesar Augustus lived. And let me just kind of show you this, this map here. Uh, so right here you have Israel. This is the island of Rhodes, right there. So, got on a boat from Judea, headed across, went to Rhodes, where Caesar Augustus lived. Um, he showed up unannounced. He essentially knocked on the door of the palace and introduced himself to the guards and asked to speak to Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And Caesar's guards and those in charge of security at the palace, when they realized who he was, they, they had to be thinking, you're an idiot. Why are you here? I mean, you're an enemy of the kingdom and, and you supported the emperor's adversary. You show up at our doorstep. We were just about to come after you. Thanks for saving us the hassle. Well, Caesar Augustus asked who's here, and his guards answer, well, sir, you're not going to believe this in a thousand years. It's King Herod of Judea who supported your adversary, the late Mark Antony and his evil wife, Cleopatra. And in his mind, Octavian, or of course now Caesar Augustus, probably had to think something to the effect, you've got to be kidding, uh, you know, you're, you're a moron. But he said, send him in. And King Herod marched in and proceeded to turn on all of his charm. And again, you can read all of this in history. And he gave a spectacular speech in front of Caesar Augustus and all of his attendants. And here's what he said. 
as you know, I was a friend of your enemy, Mark Antony. It's no secret that during the Civil War, I supported him until his death. But what this means, O Emperor, is that when I pledge my loyalty to someone, I'm loyal to them until death. And, and oh, great Caesar, may you live forever. I stand before you on this day, and in front of you and in front of your attendants, I now pledge my loyalty to you. And again, hang with me, because we'll get to the biblical narrative momentarily. This, this helps us understand Scripture. Caesar Augustus was caught off guard by King Herod's charm. And, and the strategy so amazed him that not only did he spare his life, but he left him in as king of Judea, and furthermore, gave him more responsibility, gave him Samaria, Jericho, Gaza, and sent King Herod home with his blessing. Well, King Herod's strengths ended up also being his weakness. He was so committed to controlling things. He was so committed to building his own legacy that he made one bad decision after another, after another. And to illustrate this, um, King Herod had 10 wives. This was one of his worst decisions. Just doesn't sound very smart to me. But, but with 10 wives, imagine how many children he had. And, and as his sons would grow up, he would identify one that was his favorite. He would write it in his will that that son would take over the kingdom when he died. And, but that son would invariably disappoint him, fall out of favor, and he would have that son executed. And then he would change his will and identify another son that would rule, but that son would disappoint him. And same thing, he'd be killed. And so after a while, you can imagine the sons were like, hey, that's okay, Dad. I really didn't want to be king. I'd just as soon be a fisherman or I'd rather beg along the street. It is also said that he murdered so many rabbis in and around Jerusalem that the rabbis didn't even want to come close to the area because when King Herod got mad, not nobody, not even the religious leaders were safe. He would do whatever he wanted to maintain control of his kingdom and his legacy. And I know I took a long time to get to the biblical narrative, but this is what had been going on during the time period leading up to Christ's birth. Now, as we get to the actual Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2, King Herod is probably around 70 years of age. At this time, they say, history records that he was a very sick man. They, it's believed that he had a kidney disease that was super, super painful. And we pick up our lesson in Matthew chapter 2 where all of a sudden, King Herod gets the most disturbing news that he could ever get. That this man that loved to control things receives word that, that, that five miles, that, that's right, five miles south of him, a new king has been born. Let me just show you the map, and, and you really can't see it probably, uh, but there is Jerusalem where the star is, there is Bethlehem. As the crow flies about five miles, a new king has been born. So... You have the background information. Let's let Matthew give us the account. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or we called him wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So, so these magi have followed this star to the city of Jerusalem because it's the capital city. It's the big city. It's the religious city. And they, they just assumed that the king would be born there. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. 
catch that, disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, I was just thinking about that verse this past week, and I understand why King Herod was disturbed. He was a jealous man. But the Bible says all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Have you ever thought about that? Why was all of Jerusalem disturbed? Well, my guess is that because when King Herod was disturbed, you better watch out. And especially now as a man that is sick and in intense pain, he's worried about his legacy. All of Jerusalem knows this brings on a dangerous situation where Herod was probably going to take it out on a lot of people. No one in Jerusalem was safe, so Jerusalem was disturbed. Story continues, verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and, and the teachers of the law, which that would have been the most powerful Jewish leaders, he asked them where the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, now, uh, d- just time out here a second. I, I wonder if the wise men were thinking, Herod, you should know this. You're, you're not a Jew, but you should know this because, finishing the verse, for this is what the prophet has written. So, so the prophets had foretold this centuries before this ever happened. Let's jump to verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. He's not wanting to worship him. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, what does it mean to worship? Well, this word, word worship in modern church has become synonymous with singing. You go to a lot of churches, they will say, okay, we will begin our service with a time of worship. And, and we even slip up here in this church and say that on occasion. And I notice they always say this at the men's encounter. And, and you know, it just seems like whenever there's a, a, a gathering, that's what we think, you know, okay, we're going to sing, so we are going to begin with worship. But worship is not singing. Singing can and should be part of our worship, but But the definition of of worship is not singing. Worship is an act as well as a lifestyle of completely surrendering yourself to God. And these very wealthy men who had traveled a long, long distance, probably around 900 miles from Persia, which more than likely would be the area that we call Iran, that they came into the presence of a baby, and, and because of who this baby was, they dropped to their knees, surrendered themselves to him, and didn't begin to sing, but they began to worship. They surrendered. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, five miles north, Herod is worried out of his mind. This kidney disease has him on edge, he's hurting. You know, whenever we hurt, we're cranky. He's probably asking, hey, has anyone seen those wise men, those magi that came looking for that new king and maybe even said to the servants, you know, go out, stand in the middle of the road. Make sure they don't slip by here without my knowing it. Herod is so worried about controlling things. 
His whole life has been built around preserve, protect, control. Preserve, protect, control. So even with his body racked with pain, knowing that his time on earth is very limited, he's still trying to preserve, protect, control. And that's why I say there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. We, we all want to preserve, protect, control. Men, we try to do that to our spouses. We like to manipulate and control. Ladies, some of you try to do the same thing to your husbands. Our carnal nature causes us to want to preserve, protect, control. And it's especially evident in our relationship with God. We don't mind going to church some. We don't mind reading our Bible some. and We don't mind even praying some. But this whole idea of writing God a blank check with our lives and, and the whole idea of surrendering and saying, okay, God, the answer is yes, Now, what was the question? That doesn't come naturally to us. There's a little bit of Herod in all of us. Well, the story continues with two dreams. First, a dream to the wise men in verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Here's the second dream. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. How did Herod take that news? Well, skip on down to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. When he realized that he had been outsmarted first by the wise men, secondly outsmarted by a baby and a couple of Jewish parents, he was furious. And and I might just add that when Herod was furious, people died. And that is when he gave orders that we can't even comprehend. We can't even imagine. He basically said, hey, if no one is going to identify the location of this one little baby, we're going to opt for the nuclear option. We will kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who are two years old and under. And and we mentioned this last week. So one horrible day, Herod's soldiers rolled into the town of Bethlehem and they went into every single house in the city and every single farmhouse in the country. They grabbed any boy that looked like he could be of that age and they murdered him in front of his family. And if the family resisted, they were also murdered. So, skipping ahead, what happened to Herod. Well, even though we don't have an exact date, but probably within that same year, Herod died a terribly painful death because of his kidney disease. In fact, he had been suffering so much, it's said that he tried to commit suicide. 
And committing suicide in the first century was more difficult than it is today. There were no drugs to overdose on. There were no firearms to make it instantaneous. But his disease was so bad and so painful, Herod tried to take his life. Evidently, just however, as he was in the process of trying to take his life, his cousin walked in and prevented the suicide. And so Herod lived a while longer. But anyway, just, and you've heard this just before King Herod died. And, and again, history, uh, you know, different sources will dispute this a little bit. But supposedly he gave a command. He said, I want you to round up all the wealthy, the influential, the distinguished men in Jerusalem, put them in prison. And in the hour I die, I'm giving you the command to execute all of them so that somebody will be, some, will be in mourning on the day that I die. Because he knew that when he died, there would be a party to beat all parties in the streets of Jerusalem. Herod died, but it's said that they didn't follow his orders to execute these influential men, and they were released from prison. Verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. And, and in this little twist of history, this is so fascinating to me. Herod known as Herod the Great, who did so many great things, yet in an incredible twist of fate, he became nothing but a footnote in the story of Jesus. And can you imagine talking to him the last few hours he was alive and maybe saying, hey, Herod, I've got some good news for you, and, and I've got some bad news. The good news is this, 2,000 plus years from now, people will still be talking about you. In fact, Herod, all over the world, in languages you can't imagine, in places that haven't even been discovered, people will gather in rows and in circles. They're going to read a story about you. That's the good news. But King Herod, the bad news is you're simply a sidebar. You're a B character. Maybe a C or a D character. You're, You're simply a footnote in the story of the toddler who became the king and the savior of the world. And more bad news, King Herod. Sorry. People won't talk in glowing terms about what you built. They won't talk about the seaport you put on the map, even though it's pretty amazing. Some of you have seen it. They won't talk much about the aqueducts. And yes, you'll be given credit for these things. But in most circles, you won't be known as Herod the builder. You will be known as Herod the butcher. You were five miles away from the birth of the Son of God and you missed your opportunity to go and worship Him. Fast forward 80 years. Herod is long gone. Jesus has lived His life. He's performed miracles, died on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended to be with the Father. Caesar is long gone. Tiberius is long gone. Nero is long gone. The temple has been completely destroyed and and basically just scraped off of the temple mount. Eighty years later, John, 
John the Beloved, who watched Jesus do things no one had ever done before. John, who watched Jesus die. John, who peered into an empty tomb. John, who saw a resurrected Savior. He's an old man by now, and here's what he said. And this is so relevant for us. He says this in John chapter 1, verse 4. In him, in other words, you know, this baby, Bethlehem, who grew, grew up to be a man. He was my friend. Remember, what did Jesus call him? John the Beloved. He says, in him was. Now, catch that word was. For those of you that are into grammar, was as past tense. In him was life. And that life was, here it is again, past tense, the light of men. So, John realized that Jesus was not just a Jewish Messiah. He had come for all of mankind. But, but, but then it's almost like John pauses for a moment. I love the scripture so much. It's almost like he begins to think and he's been saying, you know, past tense. And him was life and life was. And, but it's, you, you know, it's kind of like the good old days. It wasn't. It's like John all of a sudden begins to think. And it dawns on him. This isn't just past tense. I didn't realize this, how powerful it was until this past week. He's been saying, in him was, was, was. But now, he, he switches tense, and instead of being past tense... He goes to present tense. In the very next verse, verse 5 says, the light shines. It doesn't say shined. It says, the light shines, present tense, in the darkness. And remember, John had been exiled to Patmos. It looked like the Romans had won. And looks like ancient Judaism was gone forever. Yet he looks back and, 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 and says, but, or however, or nevertheless, that light still shines into the darkness right now. And, and then he punctuates it with this powerful, powerful remark. And, and this is huge. It says, but the darkness has not understood it. And what does that really mean? Well, I, I kind of studied that phrase. And, and what that literally means is the darkness has not swallowed it up. Or the New Living Translation says, the darkness can never extinguish the light. And that right there is so amazing. I mean, think of all the darkness during the days of John. There was the, 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 the darkness of Herod, the darkness of his killing baby boys two years and under. Can you imagine that darkness? The darkness of the Jewish leaders unfairly convicting Jesus. The, the darkness of the Romans beating Jesus, whipping him. And, and Scripture says to where you couldn't even recognize. If you would have seen him, you'd have said, I don't even know who that is. There was the darkness of Jesus being nailed to the cross and having spikes put in his wrists and in his ankles. There was the darkness of Jesus breathing his last breath. And there was the literal darkness that came over the earth and a literal earthquake that took place right then. But despite that darkness, it was not able to swallow up and extinguish the light of Jesus Christ. And so John goes from past tense, you know, he was the light. The good old days, he was the light too. He's still that light today. That light shines into the darkness. 
And that brings us to you. We finally get to you. Aren't you glad? What will your story be? What will your story be in relationship to the light of the world? Will it be that the darkness that is in our world, the darkness that's in your world, has overcome the light in you, that, that you have succumbed to the sins, the temptations, the discouragement of our world? You look at our political world, my, oh, my. Or will it be that the tough times, the disappointments, the unanswered prayers, all the people who didn't do what they were supposed to do, all of the hypocrisy, whatever that darkness is in your light, in your life and in your world, will your story be that that light that Jesus has given you was not swallowed up by the darkness of the world? Will it be that you stayed faithful to Jesus, the light of the world? So in these next couple of minutes, I want to give you the opportunity to go back to the light. If your story is in the past, you know the good old days. I remember the good old days. Oh yeah, God came and blessed. We ran the aisles and we shouted and I was baptized and all of that good stuff. The, the good old days and, and that's okay to remember that, that time that's important. You've got to have a reference point there. But um, what about today? Is your story all in the past? The good old days. Or is your story of how, you know, the light still shines in you? And you know, if, um, if, you, uh, if you've maybe strayed away, if that light has become dim in your life, you've allowed, you, you've succumbed to some of the darkness around you, I want to give you an opportunity to come back to the light today. Maybe you've never, never had an encounter with Jesus Christ. I want to give you that opportunity to come back or come to Him, reconnect or connect with Him and find forgiveness and salvation. Would you bow your heads, please? Oh, Father. I want to just thank you so much for the light of Jesus Christ. Lord, we think we live in a, in a dark world, and, and we do, but I really don't think it's as dark as it was back when Herod was killing babies. I don't think it's as dark as, as it was when, when the Roman leaders actually physically whipped someone beyond recognition. I don't think it's as dark as it was when an innocent man was nailed to a cross. Yes, we live in darkness, but... And Lord, John, he said it so well. You know, the light was, and it was, was, and then it's like he thinks about it for a moment, and then he realizes, you know, that light still is. It's not just was, it still is. And and so, Lord, I pray for those that maybe have lost a little bit of that light, I pray that they would come back to the light, that they would receive Jesus, that they would ask forgiveness of their sins, and God, that they would just reconnect to you, and Father, I just pray that you would help them right now, but there might be just a few here, maybe it's a handful that have never known that light, and they don't know anything about the good old days because this is new to them, and I pray, Father, that right now they would just ask for forgiveness of their sins, and that they would give their sins to you, 
And Father, that they would place themselves in your hands and invite you into their heart. And Lord, as your word says, that they would be new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so God, I just ask right now that you would begin to do a work and that we would come to the light. Lord, we would just reconnect with the light. That Lord, we would be there. Lord, in these dark days that we would make sure that there's plenty of light in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for those times that we've strayed away. Forgive us for those times that we've kind of lost focus and we've become lukewarm and we've allowed different things to cloud out the light. But I pray, Lord, that right now that that light would be obvious, that light would be visible, and especially during this Christmas season. Father, we just pray that we as, as, as people, church people, those that are listening on the live stream, on the radio broadcast, Father, I just pray that once again we would become people of light, that that the light of Jesus didn't just shine in our lives at one time, but it shines into our lives today. We would be a light for a dark world. So Lord, I just pray that right now you would do a work in our hearts and in our lives. I pray this in your name. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there someone here that would just say, Pastor, I have come back to the light today. Anybody would just want to lift a hand so I can rejoice with you. God has shown me some things in my heart and life, and and I just want to come back. Is there anybody? Lord, I just thank you for these people that I believe are, are doing some praying right now, and I ask that you would just continue to work in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for your presence, for your goodness. Your mercy endures forever. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you for coming. Merry Christmas to you. And I'll get an opportunity to tell you that again tonight. But thank you for coming. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.